you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 6, and go ahead and go to Luke chapter 12 as well. Uh, I want to start off this morning by reading both of those passages. They read very different, uh, but, but in Luke's gospel, he puts this story right before a very similar passage, and they're the same context um, and, and content in a lot of ways. And so I think uh, there's a good reason to tie these two texts together. So I just wanted to read both of them as we start. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves don't break in and steal. By the way, I planned the moth text. I don't, I don't know if that's God's providence or... Because you guys seen all the moths around recently? Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Then jump to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, starting out in verse 13. Now, someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? And he told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. He then told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. And he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and all my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have stored up goods, many goods for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's no such thing as a free lunch. That's a common economic statement. If you ever took an economics class in college or high school, Really, what it, what it means is, uh, if anyone ever offers you free lunch, it's not really free. So somewhere, someone is paying for that lunch. And furthermore, when someone offers you a free lunch, they're probably looking for something from you in return. Not always, but sometimes. So, so that meal you're invited to might very well be a sincere attempt to deepen that friendship and relationship or it may be a prime opportunity to get on the ground floor of their business proposal. You never know which one the free lunch is for. Or, or the free box of chocolates that, that salesman, or, or sorry, that guy comes up to you on the front porch. You know, that, that could be your secret admirer putting a little seed in your head. Or it might be the only means for the door-to-door -door salesman that, that he can think of to kind of weasel his way into your house. All of that to say... We are surrounded by free services. In modern America, there's this reality that we are surrounded by free services, most traditionally in the sense of what we refer to as social media. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, you, you name it. And what you may or may not know is that those things, in order for them to be free, you, you don't have to pay money for them. 
But they're, but they're not free, however, in that they still take from you. Now, they don't take your money. They take this little word we use now called data, or data, depending on how you want to pronounce that word. Namely, your information, your interests, your spending habits. And then they work with businesses who do pay them, and they put your data into an algorithm so that you might learn to buy more products. This is a really common thing most people know now. In fact, state law or federal law has required them be open with this. They actually have to give you that information they have on you. So I, didn't, I went back to my Instagram just to see what, what do they have for me. And I learned they, they have me pegged. They know exactly who I am and how to sell to me. Here's what my Instagram account says on that page. It says, we associate you with topics based on your activity on meta technology. Meta is the parent company of Instagram, Facebook. Like clicking on an ad or liking a page. Advertisers can choose to target ads to you using these topics. And then it has a list of targeted ads for you. And so I decided this morning that I was going to look through it and I was going to try to scroll. And after over a minute of just scrolling, and I mean scrolling, my app crashed. And I still didn't get to the bottom of it. So it's something along the lines of like musical instruments, uh, men's major golf championships, exercise and fitness, dog lover, Nintendo, National Football League, College Football League, Marvel Comets, something called the String Cheese Incident. I don't know what that is. I think it's a band. But that's on there. And most recently, Cute Baby. That's all over. And so, so much more. But here's, here's what that means. It, it, that in itself doesn't mean all that much until I'm scrolling and that advertisement hits my page and my brain goes, I want that. And it happens over and over again. I, I, I want that golf gear. If I buy that golfing product, I will be a better golfer. I, I, want, I want that Tennessee Vols t-shirt. I, I want that new type of guitar pick. I, how do babies survive without those products? We need that. And they have me peg. No, this is nothing new. It's the result of nearly a hundred years worth of marketing and intentional strategies to promote more and more spending and more and more consumerism. And, and we'll get to Jesus's words, but before we dive into that, I need to take some time just to prove to you how far we've fallen from that. Because I think some of us are just not aware of everything that's fallen apart in the 2,000 years after Jesus has taught us. So, here's the reality. Jesus' words are not merely a tad uncomfortable to us. They are downright in radical opposition to the air we wake up and breathe on a daily basis, most of the time with, with no awareness. So, to prove that to you, we need to do a little bit of a history lesson, but it's like borderline conspiracy history, so this is fun, right? By the way, this isn't conspiracy. You can go and look up document, uh, documentaries and stuff over this. It's fascinating to me. But post-World War II, uh, there was a man that was working for the U.S. Army Intelligence. And after World War II, he travels back to New York City and really begins to ask this question, something along the lines of, if the Nazis were able to use propaganda to shape Germans during wartime, could we use those same tactics to shape Americans during peacetime? So he starts asking these questions. That man was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, the famous psychologist, if you know anything about psychology. And he's now become known as the father of modern marketing. You probably have never heard his name. His name is Edward Bernays, and that's by design. 
He never wanted to be known. He wanted to be the unknown mover of consumerism. And so after the war, upon getting back, Bernays starts this kind of shadow alliance between politicians in D.C., bankers on Wall Street, and uh, business owners on Madison Avenue, and has them all start working together in an attempt to prompt Americans to buy more stuff. If you don't believe me, again, you can just go to YouTube, because why not just go ahead and endorse social media since we're doing that, uh, and just look up Edward Bernays, and an old NPR documentary will come up. You can watch it. It's in black and white, uh, but it's telling this, this whole story. It's actually like four parts, so enjoy that. But through, through that process, Bernays actually wrote a book that he called Propaganda, where he actually renames that term. He recoins it from propaganda to public relations because propaganda is bad, bad connotation, but public relations is good connotation, but it means the same thing, if you didn't know. And in that book, he, he actually writes this. I have the quote up here for you. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in the democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes form, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. And I can feel you like, Philip, get out of this water. This is weird. This isn't what you usually preach like. This is his book. You can go read it. It's Public Domain Propaganda by Edward Bernays. So that line of thought starts to get passed through this kind of shadow alliance, and it connects to organizations and banking organizations such as the Lehman Brothers, uh, which would go on to become the fourth largest investment bank in the U.S. before it crashed and burned in like the early 2000s. But one of their senior partners at the time, a guy by the name of Paul Mazur, uh, he extends Bernays' thoughts even further, saying this, we must, a shift Amer we must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture, people must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. So, you know, I don't need a new phone, but that new one sure looks shinier and prettier than mine. And welcome to what is called marketed obsoleteism where we intentionally phase things out to put something new in. And even though you don't need it, your mind says, I want it so bad. So people wait in line at the Apple store for two weeks waiting on the new iPhone, even though they just got one last year. There's a lot more to that story. But here we are almost 100 years later, and the average American house has over 300,000 items in it. We consume twice as much material goods as we did 50 years ago. And let me just, I know this is hard. 50 years ago was not 1950. 50 years ago was 1973. 25% of people with two-car garages uh, don't have room to park either car in their garage. 32% of people don't have room to park one car. The, the national credit card debt is setting around $6,000 per person. $12,000 per family, and we continue to be bombarded with advertisements and targeted marketing tactics, so much so that the average American sees somewhere in the vicinity of 5,000 advertisements a day. And none of those advertisements are centered on needs. You, you know this. 
Because when the Levi's jeans try to sell you some jeans, they don't say, hey, wear Levi jeans. They're the most comfortable jeans you could ever have. They last a long time. They're a really good pair of jeans. You should wear them. No, no, no. We don't advertise that way. We take some young, kind of attractive-looking person. We put them in Levi jeans, and then we show them, like, dancing in New York City. And we're like, if you wear jeans, it makes you happy and want to dance. And our brain goes, I need those jeans. I want those jeans. I desire those jeans. So, so surely, right, surely with all this mass influx of material goods and more access to information and more means of communication and better transportation than any generation in the history of humanity, surely now we are happier and more fulfilled than we have ever been. And yet research has proven time and time again that well-being has statistically been on the decline since the 1950s and has downright tanked in recent years. Might it be that we've been manipulated and lied to? That, that we, according to Richard Foster, have just been, quote, guinea pigs in one huge economic experiment in consumption? And if so, is there a way to be free? Could it be that Jesus has a better idea, a better way, a better perception, a better vision of life when it comes to consumption and simplicity? Might we once again find Jesus was right all along? Now I'll confess, I don't often get excited to preach over money. I fear it's become this kind of cliche necessity. And that the most times when people see, oh, pastor's preaching about giving today, the, the sermon, they see the sermon title and they think, oh, it's just another reminder to give my 10% tithe. And while I believe that's a great baseline to start with, a couple of things on that. One, the 10% tithe is actually an Old Testament rule uh, and is never duplicated by any writer of the New Testament. They never say give 10%. Uh, New Testament is always give generously. That's the idea, give as a cheerful giver. But, but even outside of that, I think the 10% line is a great baseline to, to think through. But the idea that God only cares about 10% of your possessions and has little to nothing to say about the other 90% is totally disconnected with the teachings of Jesus. It just is. If you take a survey of all the topics Jesus teaches on, somewhere in the vicinity of 25% of every teaching Jesus gives has something to do with money. Could you imagine if like once a month, we're like, oh, talking about money again, you wouldn't come back to this church. And yet over and over again, Jesus teaches that greed and the nagging desire for more will corrode our well-being. That, that the external pull of marketing and the internal push of greed has utterly sabotaged the truest meaning of what it means to live as a flourishing human. So instead, we're now drowning in this never-ending cycle where we feel like there's just, there's just not enough time in the day. There's just not enough money in the bank. There's just not enough stuff in my house. And the low-grade anxiety of never-ending depression coupled with the endless to-do list is suffocating us. So what is Jesus' cure? What's the rescuer's plan? So right off the top, before we go right back into this text, the best way I can think to explain it is this. Those who live intentionally like Jesus entrust everything to God. 
Jesus' rescue plan is to say, hey, turn it all over. Entrust everything you own back to God. See, for Jesus, what you give is not, what belongs to God is not just what you give to the church. In fact, what you give to God is not just your money at all. In fact, God owns everything. And if that seems over the top, Matthew 6, 19. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Some translations take that verse in verse 19, and they actually translate it like the International Standard Version, and they say, stop storing up treasures on earth. It's not just don't, but, but stop doing that. The Greek's a little bit more ambiguous. But in either case, Jesus is, of course, speaking against it. But what it seems to be is that Jesus doesn't just want to issue some hypothetical warning for those that are tempted to gather things up on earth. Hey, you're going to be tempted to gather things on earth, but just like don't do it. Jesus is saying, you are already predisposed to store things up here on earth. Stop it. It's not what leads to human flourishing. Rather, Jesus is aware that people sure like our things. We sure like our things, and our default position will be to gather as much as possible. Right? Even small children who have no concept of wealth still stores up treasures. Any of you guys have kids that just like carry a pocket full of rocks home from the playground? Like, look at all these fancy rocks I found, Mom. Like, those are just rocks. But those are my rocks, and I'm going to put them in a jar in my room and keep them forever. That's what kids do. We store up treasures. It's something within our DNA. No matter what you do, your disposition is always towards collecting things. So rather than just telling you to totally stop, Jesus suggests a perception change. So hey, stop storing up things here on earth. Why? Well, because moth and rust destroy it, where thieves break in and steal it. Whatever it is you treasure. And while I've been particularly targeting money and possessions, because I think that's what controls most of our culture, this could also be non-tangible things. It could be relationships. It could be reputation. It could be career. But, but here's Jesus' point. Everything here, other than you, is finite. This is not just a possibility. This is an inevitability. The things you collect are not just vulnerable to moth and rust. They are doomed to destruction. Every targeted ad, every status icon, every article of clothing, every 401k, every degree, none of it is carrying into eternal life with you. I know, doesn't this feel good? This is what I come to church to learn about, Pastor Philip. Now, that doesn't mean that we just stop any of it. We take vows of poverty and sell anything, everything we own. Now, Jesus does tell someone to do that in the Bible, but I'm not saying that's the standard practice, but it means we rethink. We redefine value and what we seek to store up and where we store up. So Jesus says, don't store up things on earth where it's going to get destroyed, but verse 20, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Neither moth nor rust destroyed where thieves don't break in and steal. See, Jesus isn't pressing some platitudinal concept. By the way, platitudinal is a word. I looked it up. So, Jesus isn't pressing some platitudinal concept about how your unrewarded good deeds get stored up in heaven as God bucks to be spent later on. And if you store up enough, you can go change them in for prizes at Golden Avenue C. That's not what Jesus is getting at. 
This isn't some system of rewards where we forego money so that when we die, we get bigger, better things in heaven. This is about eternal investments starting here and now. This is Jesus' proclamation of true freedom, that, that when you invest in the kingdom of heaven, it actually changes the here and now. It changes your very heart. It changes the reality in which you live. So knowing the treasures I store up here on earth are doomed, but the investments I make into heaven are both eternal and significant. That regardless of what modern marketing shoves down our throats every waking moment of every day, the good life Freedom is not found in that new car. It's actually not found in that five-star restaurant. It's, it's not found in early retirement. Freedom is found in reprioritizing our lives to focus on the kingdom of heaven and then invest accordingly. Why? Verse 24. Because no one can serve two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And he just, Jesus just says it so plain, plainly. You cannot serve both God and money. You, you can't have it both ways. Jesus goes through what seems to be painstaking redundancy in his teaching, beating the same drum over and over and over. Here's, here's just a couple of verse in Acts 20, 35. It says, don't you remember what Jesus said? That he who gives is more blessed than he who receives. And you may remember from a long time ago when we did uh, the Beatitudes, that this term bless is the Greek word makarios, which actually can even be translated happy. So once again, Jesus just lines up with what statistics and psychology teaches us. Those who give are happier than those who keep taking. Or Mark 10. It's difficult for someone rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What we read in Luke chapter 12. Watch out and be on guard against all types of greed because one's life is not found in an abundance of possessions. In the mind of Jesus, the creator of the world, wealth is seen as an obstacle to the good life, not a means to the good life. Now, that absolutely does not mean that you're not allowed to hold wealth and follow Jesus. Jesus is able to bless and then take that blessing and pour blessing out from you on to other people. But what this means is that if God has blessed you with finance or possessions or belongings, then he calls you to radical generosity. Why? Because it all belongs to him anyways. That whatever you own, you entrust it to God. You entrust everything to God. And here's the question. Can we take Jesus seriously. And by seriously, I don't mean morally correct. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe everything that Jesus taught is morally correct. That's good and that's right. But it's a whole other thing to look at what Jesus taught and say, I believe that's actually in tune with reality. Hence the little guitar illustration. I can correctly play all the right chords, but if it's not in tune with the reality of those chords, the reality of the way music is supposed to go, how does it sound? Horrible. Downright bad. We can go and we can do all the right things and believe all the right things, but until it comes into our minds and changes our perception, 
we won't understand what Jesus' promise is. So what Jesus' invitation here is to actually believe that you are absolutely forgiven by his sacrifice. Jesus' invitation is that you would believe and know that you are set free and live a freedom life. That through Jesus, you would know eternal life and perfection. It's all of those things. And is that he would invite you into the truest notion of human flourishing. That, that as the creator of the world, Jesus is actually very aware of what it means to live a life that he's conducted. To live in a world that he has created. To live in a way of Jesus, to actually begin to embrace and live out what it means to be human as according to God's design plan. And for Jesus, that demands a total overhaul of the modern Western philosophy of wealth and consumption to new light. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye works, you can see. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? To, to Jesus, what he needs from you is he needs you to come to him, surrender everything, that he might rewire your eyes in the way you see the world, to heal your eyes, to see the world as he created it to be seen. So how do you do that? Well, I understand the last few years in particular have been this constant bombardment of financial turmoil. I get it. I have a retirement account. I look at it, and I think, oh, that's not fun to watch. We here in America still live far more lavishly than most of the world, than the vast majority of the world. The fact is the majority of us in here spent more than $14 this week. If you spent more than $14 this week, you spent more than half of the world's population did. The entire world's population, you are greater in the upper 50%. Most of us arrived here by car. And probably, for us couples and stuff, our families, we own more than one car. Most of us got up and had breakfast this morning unless you voluntarily chose not to. And we'll go on to eat another two meals today. We woke up in homes and apartments and beds furnished with decorations and trinkets and appliances. We, last night, turned off our large screen to go look at our small screens in bed, because that's just what we do now. And I'm not trying to downplay the financial turmoil that you might be experiencing. Again, I, I understand it. But it's always worth putting your wealth into perspective. Because Jesus sees wealth, any bit of it, as an obstacle to his way of life. And most everyone in our country lives surrounded by vast amounts of wealth compared to the rest of the globe. So how do we do this? And I think we have to start asking questions and asking God to be the light within us to show us his way and his truth. We have to ask questions like, how much is too much? And I think we should also ask questions like, how much is too little? How much is just enough? How do we answer those questions? And here's the thing. Jesus never answers those questions. He's not a policy writer. Jesus isn't coming out saying, thou must have no more than 12 pairs of shoes, unless thou is farming, and then thou may have 18 pairs of shoes to readily work in them. He doesn't do that. 
Jesus doesn't come in and say, hey, you can't have a house any bigger than 144 square foot per person. That's sin, so lock your house into that size. Jesus doesn't come in and say, your thermostat can't go above 71 degrees or below. It needs to say right there, that's, that's what I've ordained is the perfect temperature, and if you're above or below, you're sin. Jesus doesn't say any of that. Jesus is a teacher that carries you into a deeper reality of how he made the world, and then he invites you to submit your life the way you think, the way you perceive reality to him and to his way, meaning the one who intentionally lives like Jesus entrusts everything to God. And trusts everything to God. And to do that, what God wants to do is communicate with you through his Holy Spirit. And I don't necessarily mean that some crazy motion of speaking to you in an audible voice. I'm not saying God can't do that. But what I mean by that is, when's the last time you've created space within your life and you've went to the God and said, God, through your spirit, would you just make it clear the things in my life that need to change? And he might call you to something. He might say, hey, I understand you got it going on. Things are good. He might say, hey, you probably need to go ahead and take a month and just only buy the necessities of consumables, buy groceries and food, but don't spend anything else on your Instagram targeted ads. Take, take a break from that. Or, hey, you, you need to refuse to make particular purchases until you're out of debt. Or, or you need to eat out less. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I, I can't tell you what God wants you to do with your money. Other than this, God wants you to give it to him, to be generous, to say, God, everything I have actually belongs to you. To take the ideas that generate from within you, that the Holy Spirit communicates to you, and follow the Spirit's prompting. Because here's the deal. Jesus came to save us from our sins. That is the gospel truth. He comes, he lives a perfect life. He teaches us the way in which we should live. And then he takes that perfect life. He goes to the cross. He dies in our place so that at the cross, anyone that would believe in Jesus might receive his perfection as the sin of their life is placed on his shoulders. And he takes that to the grave and buries it away to never be seen again. That is the forgiveness that Jesus offers. If you don't know that forgiveness, now is a great morning to come talk to me. I would love to tell you more about it. Jesus came to forgive us from our sins. But here's the other side. Jesus also came to save us from our sins. There's a difference. They're both a key factor of the gospel, but there is a difference. Jesus came to set you free and setting you free means he came to set you free of that lust addiction. He came to set you free of that anger problem. He came to set you free of that gossip you tend to navigate to when you get in privacy with those people you like to talk about all the other. He came to set you free of all of that. And Jesus came to set you free from this idea that true good life is found in gathering more and more and more and more and more. Because everything in this culture is telling you that. And Jesus has come to say, I have invited you to a better way of life. Where you store up treasures, not here on earth, but in heaven. Where God uses it to invest in his eternal kingdom. So what do you need to do about it? Honestly, 
I don't have a clear answer for you. I can't give you exactly what you should be giving to the church, nor do I want to tell you what you should be giving to the church. In fact, we, we have it set up here at First Baptist, uh, and I love this. I don't see what anyone gives. I don't want to see what anyone gives. It's not my business. I trust God can take care of this church. He has for 125 years. He can keep doing it because he's God. But what I'm inviting you to is the life that God wants you to live. So we're going to give you a few moments as we sing to reflect, to, to spend a few moments saying, God, what do you want me to do? Holy Spirit, what are you calling me? And maybe it's spend less, maybe it's give more, maybe it's nothing. I, I don't know. But regardless, Jesus is inviting you to a truer, freer way of life than what any product could ever offer you. Father God, thank you for what you've done in us. I pray that you would truly be the one who sets us free, who forgives us and loves us and redeems us, all of that. But that freedom would not just be something that's coming on the day we finally get to break the chains of this world and go to the next. No, that that's something that we experience right here and right now in this life. God, that you would create First Baptist to be an icon for your glory of what it means to have freedom. And God, that would be seen in the way we treat one another, the way we spend our money, the way we treat our possessions. God, help us to be a church that sincerely and truthfully entrusts everything to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.